0: You're listening to the Bible Brush Up podcast, and today we are looking at the book of Ruth. We've just wrapped up the book of Judges, but we have not left the era of the Judges since the book of Ruth begins with these words, In the days when the Judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And that's where our story begins. Now, we don't know exactly where in the timeline of the book of Judges this would fall, but certainly it seems that it is during a time of uh, rebellion and and sin because in the land there is a famine, and God had already promised the people through his covenant with them that if they were righteous and they lived according to the standards of the law, then he would bless the land, and it would be prosperous. They would be prosperous, and it would be fruitful, and uh, they would have children, and all these things would uh, take place. It would be a, a time of blessing, but instead what we see is a time of curse, and uh, as we recall back to some of the previous episodes in the book of Judges, their time in the land was very cyclical. They would have times of blessing and prosperity, but through that they would begin to turn away from God and to cling to other idols in the land that they had left there because they were unwilling and unable to drive out the inhabitants of the land, which would lead them to full-out rebellion and would bring a curse upon their head, which would Result in things like famine and pestilence in the land and then they would call out to God and he would send a judge to deliver them But in our story of Ruth It seems that we are in that part of the cycle where we have the curse upon the land And there are several things that we could bring out of this book that point to the evil in the land and what might have brought about such a curse Uh, For one, we look at this family who the story is focused around. We have a guy named Elimelech And he is married to Naomi and it says they have two sons, Malon and Shilion, but uh, they don't marry Israelite women. And they go ahead and marry Moabite women, which is something that was forbidden to the Israelites. They weren't supposed to be marrying foreigners. They were supposed to marry within Israel because by aligning themselves and marrying foreign women, they would often be drawn away to their foreign gods. And that's exactly what happens when these uh, children die. They, the One of the daughters— in law, is sent back to her people and to her gods. So we obviously see that they had other gods, and by marrying, they would have been inclined to at least be exposed to this foreign worship and foreign deity, this idolatry. And uh, so we see that already, and then not only do they marry Moabite women, but the whole family relocates to Moab. And so they are leaving the promised land. They're supposed to be driving out the inhabitants that are living in Israel. And instead, they're marrying foreigners and then relocating to foreign land. This is similar to the predicament that we see in Samson. Samson is supposed to be a judge who drives out these foreign uh, people who are oppressing Israel. He's supposed to drive out these Philistines, but instead he marries a Philistine. And uh, that becomes his downfall. So there's a lot of similarity going on between this family and some of the judges that we've already read about. Um, But in addition to that, we see this famine that's causing them to have to leave because they've got no food. uh, And this is a result of the curse on the land. And then we see all of the males in this family die when they are in Moab. And one might say, well, that's just a coincidence, just a strike of bad luck. But I tend to think that maybe this is actually part of the curse that's falling upon this family um, because of the sinful situation that Israel is uh, involved in and maybe even the sin on the family's part for allowing their children to marry Moabite women and to, mar- or to move into Moabite territory instead of living in the land as God had prescribed And rather than running away from these problems, they should have been solving these problems by calling out to God and repenting and and calling on their neighbors to repent. And perhaps they could have seen revival in the land. But we don't get any of that. We just get a bunch of death and famine. And so when this happens, Naomi, when she comes back with only one daughter-in-law now, Ruth, uh, the other one returns to her gods. And so she comes back to Bethlehem because she hears, hey, maybe things are a little bit better over there now. And when she gets there, they call her Naomi, which means pleasant, and she says, don't call me pleasant, call me Mara, which means bitter, because she says that God has dealt bitterly with her. And so her framework, at least for interpreting all of these events, is that this is God doing this to her. This is God pouring out his wrath on her and her family and on the land, um, probably because of the sinfulness that has gone on in the background of this story. Naomi tells Ruth after she goes gleaning and, and picking up the grain off the um, out of the field of Boaz that she needs to stay with him and his women. And the reason she says that she needs to stay with them is because if she goes into another field, she might get assaulted. That's the word used in the translation I'm using in the English Standard Version. And so this paints a picture of the type of situation that Israel is in, that women that go off and Are trying to make ends meet. They are vulnerable to society. They have gotten so evil that they could possibly be assaulted, which shouldn't surprise us when we think back to the time of the judges. We have that concubine at the end of the book of Judges who was raped and left for dead on the doorstep, who then gets cut into pieces and mailed all over uh, the region, which results in a big civil war. And so this is how they treated women at this time period. Uh, You think back to Sisera. Sisera was Um, mourned over by his mother who expected him to go and to take plunder of the Israelites and to take two wombs for himself. He was going to take their women and he was going to uh, impregnate them and he was going to use them as property. And this is just the way that women were being treated at this period of time. And Naomi reveals that as she instructs Ruth on how to go and make ends meet. And so we see once again the evil in the land. Um, And then we get to the end of the story where there's a chance for the near kinsman redeemer to redeem Ruth, and he at first wants to redeem the land because he says, hey, that's more land for me, more land for my uh, sons that I can divvy up when it comes time to give them their inheritance. But then when he finds out that he has to raise up uh, offspring on behalf of his near kin, which was a part of the Levitical law, he says, no, I'm not going to do that. And so he doesn't uphold his end of the bargain. He doesn't do his duty. And all of this has sort of got uh, the book of Genesis in the background, because we think back to the period of time when Judah's son, Ur, had a wife named Tamar, and he was evil, and so God killed him. And Tamar is left a widow without any offspring, which The women of this time, that was like their greatest fulfillment is to have children. And so Onan, the brother of Ur, is supposed to raise up children on Ur's behalf. He's supposed to come and to produce children that will carry on the name of Ur, not the name of Onan himself. And that's how God had. Arranged for family lines to continue so that inheritances of tribal land and all that in the future would continue. But Onan, once again, does not live up to uh, that calling, just like the Redeemer in the book of Ruth. He doesn't want to have children by her that aren't going to represent his name. It's selfishness. He's only looking out for himself. He's not considering his brother, he's not considering Tamar. And so he won't do it, and God strikes him down as well. And as that story unfolds, that's where we find this really nasty situation where Tamar dresses up as a prostitute and goes and sleeps with the father of the two boys, Judah, and ends up having children, twins, by him. And one of them is named Perez, who shows up in the book of Ruth. And so we got to have that story in the background or else we won't really be able to get the full picture. And in fact, Perez is one of the forefathers of Boaz and uh, of the tribe of Judah. It's extending the line of Judah all the way down to Boaz, um, which becomes very significant as we look at the point of this entire book, uh, because we are dealing with the book of Judges, which continues to remind us that it was during a time period where there was no king in the land, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we still see that everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. They're not fulfilling their duty as kinsmen redeemers. They're assaulting women. Um, They are marrying Moabite women. They are moving to foreign lands. Everything that they're not supposed to be doing, they're doing. And there's still no king, but this is the bridge that connects us from a kingless society to a society with a king. Because at the very end of the book is where we get the genealogy of Boaz, which uh, his son is going to be the grandfather of David. And so this is a story of how we get to King David, which is right around the corner in our Bible reading plan. But before we conclude for today, I'd just like to point out a couple of things that I think are worthy of our attention. Uh, because it wasn't all evil. There are a few shining lights in the land. It doesn't uh, mean that everybody was doing evil and that everybody was unrighteous. and uh, As a general rule of thumb, the entire nation was, but you have people like Boaz. And Boaz, it says in chapter 2, verse 1, that he was a worthy man. And he was very generous with Ruth, and he was very protective of her, and he gave to her well beyond what he had to according to the standards of the law. And so he went above and beyond, and he was very generous and gracious. And so this is a character of a man living in a land full of selfishness and darkness, and yet he still is a shining light, which is a reminder to us that we do not have to conform to the society around us, but can remain righteous and uphold God's standards, even when the rest of the world does not. Uh, Another thing that we see, though, is when Ruth goes to him and requests that he cover her with his wing or with his garment. Uh, And this was all symbolic of basically a a proposal (laughs) of the marriage. And he goes on to tell her that uh, there's a closer kinsman redeemer. But in that conversation in chapter 3, verse 11, he refers to her as a worthy woman. So we have a worthy man in an unworthy society. And we have a worthy woman in an unworthy society. And we've already seen the worth of Ruth where she will not go back to her gods and her people. She's going to stick by Naomi and she's going to work her tail off to to provide for Naomi. And it just shows her worth and her sacrificial nature. And we have two people in the story that are very sacrificial and very worthy. And they are a match made in heaven. And it just, it's a blessing to read to the end of this that it unfolds the way that it does, that we have um, this union take place and this marriage take place between two worthy people um, that were vastly different from the society around them. So Boaz goes and he acquires the sandal of the closest kinsman redeemer, which it tells us is the custom in that day uh, to transfer this ownership. Uh, He did that in front of a crowd and they would all testify to the fact that he was going to redeem Ruth and the land that came with her. And uh, while we might have to get a notary and to have paperwork filed at the courthouse and things of that nature, back then it was just the passing of the sandal uh, along with some witnesses. But at the very end of the book of Ruth, after all this takes place, the crowd who witnesses this uh, redeeming ceremony responds with a blessing. And the blessing in verse 11 says this, then all the people who are at the gate And the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily. So there they are. May you act worthily. They're already worthy people. And now the blessing is that they act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring. Now, when you hear that, may your house be like... Perez, you may think back to that story and think, oh my goodness, that was a terrible situation. She had to act like a prostitute, slept with her father in law, but that's not the point they're focusing on. They're focusing on the issue of kinsman redeemer because the sons in the story in Genesis would not fulfill their duty as kinsman redeemer. And then Tamar had to take matters into her own hands so that Judah would be playing the part of the kinsman redeemer, even though involuntarily. It makes a comparison to Boaz now, who is willingly stepping up and fulfilling his duty, sacrificially, and if God can make good out of a situation like Tamar and Judah, and you get Perez, who is now a forefather of this great nation, then how much more will God bless this union of two worthy people where Boaz is willfully stepping up and doing what God has called his people to do? And, of course, we get down to the end of this and see that the genealogy is going to lead to King David, a people who had no king, a people who were doing what was right in their own eyes. They now are going to be led by the standard bearer for all of Israel's kings who will foreshadow the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. So just remember when we act worthily and we follow God in righteousness, he can do great and mighty things and will do great and mighty things. We'll pick up next here on the Bible Brush-Up Podcast.